Father, we just come into your presence and ask a blessing upon the teaching of the Word of God today. I pray, Father, that you would help me. I pray, Father, that we would be willing to take a look and examine this text for what it says and let it impact our life. We pray that we might be able to learn from the ministry of John the Baptist. We pray, Lord, that you would be working in the congregation to each need of the people that have come here today. O oh, Spirit of God, would you sovereignly apply that word in places that it needs to be applied? Do your work of sanctification in hearts. And if there's any here today that don't know Jesus, we pray you do the work of salvation, of bringing conversion and, and new birth and new life to people. So this we pray, Lord, in the glorious, great name of Jesus. Amen. We have been working our way through Luke's Gospel, and we've worked our way through the first two chapters up to this point. And up to this point, what Luke has been basically doing is speaking to us about both John the Baptist and Jesus in their infancy, and then in Jesus in his boyhood. And so what Luke does is, first of all, he, he tells us about the announcement of John's birth. The angel Gabriel comes to John's father, Zacharias, and announces that, that his wife is going to bear a son. And then we have the description of how the, announce of the birth of Jesus Christ is announced by that same angel, to Mary, the mother of Jesus. So the announcement of John's birth, the announcement of Jesus' birth. And then we have the birth of John described, and then we have the birth of Jesus described. And Luke goes a little bit further by giving us one incident from the boyhood of Jesus when he was 12 years old. Well, that brings us to chapter 3, where Luke is really interested in developing this plot line. Remember, he's writing this two-volume work, Luke Acts, for a man named Theophilus. And he wants to give Theophilus the details of Jesus Christ. And what he's most interested in is not his birth and his boyhood. What he's most interested in is his adult ministry, and especially the last week of his life, his death, burial, and resurrection. And we know that because Luke spends two chapters giving us 30 years of Jesus' life, and then he takes 22 chapters to describe three and a half years of his life. And if we were to go further, we could also discern that in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those Gospel writers take one-third of their space to describe seven days in the life of Jesus, the last seven days of his life. So that's what the Gospel writers are intensely concerned to portray. They want to show Jesus in his ministry, but especially they want to show what he accomplished when he died and rose again. So we are embarking. Luke has set the stage for this new area that Luke wants to develop for Theophilus, which is the adult ministry of Jesus. And he introduces that by showing his forerunner, John the Baptist. Now, we're going to be speaking about John the Baptist this morning and some next week as well. John the Baptist was a unique and extremely powerful individual. In fact, Jesus said of him that there has never arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. So up from Adam to John the Baptist, John the Baptist was the greater. And think about all the men in the Old Testament that he was comparing him to. Moses and Elijah and David and the prophets. So we are going to be embarking on a study of John. And the thing that I want to show you as we get started is verse 2. There's a phrase there. It says, the word of God came to John. The word of God came to John. Everything in verse 1 is leading up to that statement, and everything in verse 2 and following is flowing out of that statement. You see, for 400 years, the word of God had not come to anybody. Malachi was the last of the prophets, 400 years earlier. So, go back in your mind with me. 400 years from today would be 1714, right? Okay, go back in, your, in history to 1714 and all that's transpired... No, I'm, I'm wrong, aren't I? 16. 1614. Yeah. I'm, I'm usually pretty good at numbers, but I'm not today. Anyway, 1614. So, I mean, we're talking about the Mayflower. 
We're talking about all the Puritans that came to the United States in the 1600s. We're talking about Whitfield and Wesley and signing the Declaration of Independence and then everything that happened in the 1800s and 19... We're talking about a long, long period of time. That's how long it was since God had given a word to his people. But the word of God came to John. And that little word to, it came to John. In the Greek, it's api, which means upon. The word of God came upon John, meaning that it came upon him with power and pressure such that John had to preach it. There was this compulsion, this calling that John had to deliver the word, the burden of the word of the Lord that God had given to him. Now, when did this take place? Look at verse 1. It was in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. And historians have been able to narrow that down so that we know it was approximately 27 to 29 AD when this was taking place. And what, what Luke does is he mentions no less than seven historical persons. He mentions an emperor, a governor, three tetrarchs, and two high priests. Seven historical persons of great power in order to narrow down the exact time when John began his ministry. Now why would he do that? Why would he take the time to pinpoint so specifically and precisely when these details are taking place? I think probably the answer to that is that Luke wants Theophilus to truly understand that he's not writing fiction. He's not writing fantasy. This isn't some kind of a fairy tale. Now it might seem that way when you talk about a man walking on water and multiplying loaves of bread and rising from the dead. He has to make sure that Theophilus and anyone else who ever reads this document understands that what he's about to write about was rooted in real history. It actually happened in time and space. It's not something like pie in the sky dream stuff. This is reality. This took place in real history. So that's when it happened. Where did it happen? Verse 2 says it was in the wilderness. In the wilderness. Now, chapter 1, verse 80, Luke has already told us about John that the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit, and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So, he grew up, he moved into the deserts, and he lived there. He lived there away from most other people, you could say he was a kind of an eccentric guy. Kind of a recluse. You know, some people are just wired that way. I know someone very dear to my heart that's just wired that way. They like to be alone. But in John's case, I think the reason he did that was because he was able to commune with God. I believe that the Lord must have been speaking to him and laying this word upon his heart with so much power and pressure that he knew he had to break forth and deliver it. And so out of these years of communion with God and seclusion, the Lord was preparing John to be his instrument. Notice that he bypassed all the people that we would have thought most likely. When God wants to do something new and fresh and powerful, well, he doesn't do it through the Caesar, the emperor, doesn't do it through the governor, doesn't do it through the tetrarchs, he doesn't even do it through the high priests. He bypasses all of them, and he chooses someone who's a little bit strange, who a lot of people think was probably fanatical. This guy wears camel's hair, it's got to be very scratchy and itchy. He's got a leather belt, just like Elijah, his predecessor, and he eats grasshoppers. And he, whenever he can find honey out in the wild, he gets some of that, and that's his diet, grasshoppers and honey. I mean, this guy is really different. But God chooses him to do something that is so powerful, we can hardly believe that it actually took place. We'll get to that in just a minute. Now, I want to speak to you about three aspects of John's ministry. First of all, John's method. Secondly, John's manner. And thirdly, John's message. So first of all, his method. God had called John to prepare the way for the Messiah. God had called John to bring a nation of Israelites to repentance so that when their king appeared on the scene, they would receive him. Now that's no small order, is it? Talk about bringing a nation of religious people to repentance to the place where they would actually get baptized, which is what only Gentiles did in that day when they wanted to become Jews. I mean, this was an amazing work of God that God was calling him to be the instrument of. 
And so how is he going to do it? He's going to bring about revival in Israel. A massive revival. The Bible says that all Israel and or all Judah and Jerusalem were going out to the river Jordan to be baptized. Including the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees. Masses of people. Now, now notice, John's out in the wilderness. He's not walking the streets of Jerusalem trying to attract people. He's way out here and the masses are flooding out there to listen to him. We're talking about a sovereign move of the Holy Spirit. Now we have seen sovereign moves of the Holy Spirit throughout history in various times and various places. We call those revivals. It's not something where you hang your shingle and say revival from uh, January 10th to January 17th and this preacher is going to preach. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking a sovereign move of God whereby he so grips the hearts of the people in, in a vicinity that they know God is amongst them. And there's this trembling and this awakening and this drawing to get to know this God. So John is called to do that. So how is he going to do it? What's his method going to be to accomplish this great work that God has called him to? Well, let's take a look at verse 3. And he came into all the district around the Jordan preaching. There's his method. He's going to preach. He doesn't use some slick advertising method or marketing scheme. God doesn't go to the high and mighty of that day and say, I'll do it through you because you've got all this influence. He chooses a kind of a crazy, fanatical nobody, an eccentric hermit out in the desert and he says, you're going to be the one and you're going to accomplish this massive work through preaching. And you know, it shouldn't surprise us that the Lord decided to do it that way because all through history, that's how God has done His work. Think about the city of Nineveh. How did God bring an entire city which had hundreds of thousands of people in it to their knees, humbling themselves, repenting in sackcloth and ashes? How did He do it? Right? Through the preaching of a man that we know as Jonah. And his, his message was pretty short. You can say it in about 10 seconds. 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That was his preaching. But God used that to sovereignly bring even the king and all the people under him to their knees in repentance. And then think about the other men of God in the Old Testament. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, all of the other prophets. These were preachers. They had a burden on their hearts that they delivered to the people. Jesus Christ himself came preaching, just like John did. The apostles in the book of Acts were preachers. Think about the great move of God in the Reformation. When uh, in the early 1500s we had a man by the name of Martin Luther who spearheaded a new Reformation. True revival was breaking out. Martin Luther was basically just a preacher. He was a preacher. He was a writer as well, but he spent... Most of his time preaching the Word of God. Same with John Calvin. The same with John Knox. These are the powerhouses of the 1500s. Go to the 1600s. Who did God use? A band of men that were called Puritans because they wanted to purify the Church of England's worship. They were men who were thoroughly biblical, believed the Word of God, and then preached it. Men like John Owen and John Bunyan and Thomas Watson, and Richard Sibbs. These men, you can still buy their volumes of works today. They were preachers. And then the 1700s, how did God do, how, who did he use in the first great awakening? Do you guys know? Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, and John Wesley were the main three that God was using in a powerful way throughout England and America. These guys were preachers. It is estimated that George Whitfield preached probably 18,000 sermons during his lifetime. And he, he didn't die old, he died young. I think he was 57 years old. He wore himself out. But the reason he, he preached 18,000 times is because he would preach multiple times every day. He, sometimes he'd start off at 5 or 6 in the morning. Now who's going to get up to go listen to preaching at 5 in the morning? But they were. During the Great Awakening, people were doing that. And then he would ride his horse to some central park. And people in this park would congregate. It was all open air. And he would preach again. And then he would ride his horse someplace else and he'd preach again. So three or four or five times a day, sometimes 25, 30 times a week, he was preaching. And they're not short little sermonettes. These are lengthy 
meaty, solid, doctrinal sermons that he's preaching. You could read them today. Same with John Wesley. Same with Edwards. These men were preachers. If you go to the 1800s, the men that God used powerfully, probably the most powerful preacher of the 1800s was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Another, perhaps one of the greatest, if not the greatest preacher that we've known. So, it's no surprise then that when God wants to bring about revival and renewal and reformation, He does it through a man whom He calls to preach. In fact, we know from the Apostle Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians 121, that Paul says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. How do you do it? It's through the foolishness of the message preached. Not the message written, or the message sung, or the message acted. It was through the message preached. And since this has always been God's method from the beginning of history until now, I don't think it's going to change. I don't see any change in the future. And if we as a church bring in other things to substitute for the preaching of the word, we're making a grave mistake. If we bring in skits and special music and all kinds of other things and we shorten down God's preaching to 15 or 20 minutes, I think, I think we're in error. We need to be those that preach, proclaim the truth. Whether that's out in the streets, and some of you here are street preachers, and I love that. Whether it's out in the streets or whether it's here before a congregation, the method for doing the will of God to build up the kingdom of God is preaching the word of God. So that was John's method. Let's look at John's manner. And by manner, I mean, how did he carry himself? How did he conduct himself during his ministry? Well, we don't have to wonder. Look at verse 7. So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You could say John the Baptist probably had not read Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. He wasn't a man-pleaser at all. In fact, I don't think John was afraid of any man. John was fearless. He was bold, he was direct, he was truthful, he was honest, and he was forthright. In fact, he was just plain blunt. <laughs> he was the kind of guy that was raw, but I think God probably chose him for that reason. Because God needed a man like this to spearhead this great revival that he was going to bring about. He talked very plainly about two subjects in verse 7, sin and hell. Sin, because you brood of vipers. Hell, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And I want to look at those two phrases with you this morning. First of all, you brood of vipers. What in the world does that mean? <laughs> a viper is a poisonous snake. All you have to do is Google it, you'll find out real quick. That's what it means. It's a poisonous snake. And a brood of vipers is a whole bunch of them. We know what a brood of chickens is, right? A mother hen has a bunch of eggs and they all hatch and all these chicks come out and they follow her around. That's her brood. Well, when these snakes hatch out of their eggs, you've got a brood of vipers, a brood of poisonous snakes. So Jesus looks at these people square in the face and he says, you are a bunch of poisonous snakes. That was John the Baptist. If I said Jesus, I was wrong. John the Baptist said that. So he's very forthright. He's not pulling any punches. He's a straight shooter. Now, who's he speaking to when he says that? In Luke's Gospel, it's a little bit ambiguous. It says in verse 7, He began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by Him, You brood of vipers. But if you look at the companion verse in Matthew 3, verse 7, it says, When the Pharisees and the Sadducees went out, He said to them, You brood of vipers. So I believe what, what He's doing here is he's, he's addressing the religious leaders of His day. The self-righteous. The ones who were unhumbled, unrepentant, who thought that their righteousness was going to gain them a standing with God. 
that they could be saved by their Jewishness and by their Jewish observances. And he says to them, you brood, you bunch of poisonous snakes. Now, what would have crossed their minds when they heard him say that? What from the Old Testament would they immediately think about? Where do we find snakes? The Garden of Eden. Satan, in the form of a serpent or a viper, tempted Eve. And in fact, there was a promise made that I'm going to put, um, what's the word, not hostility? Enmity. Enmity, yeah, there it is. I'm going to put enmity between your seed, Satan, you serpent, and the woman's seed. In other words, God there is pronouncing that there is going to be a seed or an offspring of this serpent. Sons of the devil. And that's what John is calling them. You guys are children of the devil. You think that you're so righteous. You think that you're going to get into heaven by your own works and by your Jewish observances. You're actually sons of snakes. You carry his nature within you. You're lost. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So the first thing that John talks about is that they are, they're a brood of vipers. They're sons of the devil. In fact, Jesus later on will say the same thing, won't he? In John 8, 44, he says, You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. Jesus and John don't really speak much differently than each other. Jesus will call this Pharisees a brood of vipers and serpents in Matthew 23. He talks, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He calls them sons of the devil. It's not unusual or weird for John the Baptist to be speaking this way because Jesus, God incarnate, speaks this way. So he doesn't mince words. The second thing he mentions is the wrath to come. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? It doesn't seem like John is embarrassed to speak about the wrath to come. Does he to you? Not at all. It doesn't seem like he's fearful, like he's afraid of people's opinions of him if he were to say something that they didn't like. It doesn't seem like he's worried of offending people. <laughs> what do you think is crossing John's mind? What's he most concerned about right here? He's, he's concerned to glorify God by delivering the message God had laid on him and to deliver it faithfully and accurately and truthfully. He's concerned for the souls of these religi religious people who were lost, who were serpents. Look at verse 9. He says later, Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. It's the picture of a gardener walking through his orchard, looking at his trees, and noticing which ones are producing fruit and which ones are dead and poisoned. And then there's, a, there's an axe lying down there at the trunk of that tree, and he says he's going to pick up that axe and chop it down if it doesn't bring forth fruit. He's talking here about judgment, being thrown into the fire. He's talking about hell. And then verse 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So he mentions fire twice. Once it's unfruitful trees. In this particular situation, it's chaff. The worthless stuff that gets laid behind when you get the kernel that you can eat. All the rest is just burned up. So what John is saying is that you've got wheat and you've got chaff. You've got fruitful trees, you've got unfruitful trees. You've got sons of God and you've got sons of the devil. And these folks over here who are sons of the devil are going to be burned. They're going to be destroyed. God's wrath, His almighty wrath is going to be poured out upon them. I don't know about you, but I think we could do with a lot more John the Baptist today. What do you think? Would to God that he would raise up more Johns that would speak fearlessly, unapologetically, uncompromisingly, would give people the absolute truth and not worry, let the chips fall. I really think that would be a good thing for the church. I think we've got too many, as John Piper says, velvet-mouthed preachers. <laughs> And what I mean by that is people who want to be hip and cool 
And so they don't want to offend because they want their church to grow real big. And so they will tell them what they want to hear. Or in 2 Timothy chapter 4, they will itch where they're scratch, or they're, they'll scratch where they're itching. They will tell them things that make them feel good and nice and pleasant rather than what God wants them to know. You know, today the tendency is whenever you have to talk about eternal judgment that you phrase it as a Christless eternity. You ever heard that expression? A Christless eternity. Folks, how many sinners do you think are afraid of a Christless eternity? I don't think any are. I think they look forward to a Christless eternity, don't you? They don't want to go where Jesus is. They're kind of happy. Oh, good. I get an eternity without Him. That's what I want. A Christless eternity. And you know what? A Christless eternity is actually not biblical. You may have never thought about this, but Jesus Christ in one form or fashion is present in hell, according to Revelation 14, verse 10, where it says, They, the lost, will drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and they will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of who? The Lamb. Who's the Lamb? Jesus. Christ. They will suffer in the presence of the Lamb. Jesus isn't absent from hell. Now, his gracious presence is absent, but not his wrathful presence. So I think it's, it's ridiculous to speak about a Christless eternity. It doesn't do any good because it br brings no one to take a look at their sin and to flee from that sin to, cr to Christ who can save them from the wrath to come. I love the statement of John Wesley. He says, Give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God. And I care not a straw whether they be clergymen or laymen. Such alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven upon earth. We need to pray that God will help us not to fear the face of any man. And if we're by nature man-pleasers, let's just pray about that. I have to pray about that a lot because sometimes I feel like the Lord wants me to say something and I'm, I don't know, can I do that? Is that, should I do that? But we all have to do that. So that was John's manner. Bold, direct, uncompromising, faithful to God's word. Thirdly, let's look at his message. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. We're going to look at two aspects of his message today. Number one, his message was, you must repent in order to be forgiven. You must repent in order to be forgiven. Look at verse 3. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, I think it's a mistake to say that the baptism achieved forgiveness of sins. I believe what's taking place here is this repentance produced forgiveness of sins, and the baptism was the outward display of the inner repentance that was going on in the heart of the Israelites within that generation. So he was to preach a baptism of repentance. 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 What does he mean by repentance? Well, if you were to go back in your mind to chapter 1, verse 16, the angel Gabriel told Zacharias that your son, John, is going to turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. I believe that's what he means by repentance. A turning. That's the basic idea of repentance. It's a turning. If I'm walking this direction, it's to turn around and go that direction. If I'm loving the vain sins in my life and they've become my idols and so I'm, I'm immersing myself in these vain sinful pursuits it's to stop pursuing that and to change and go a different direction now it's not talking about being saved by works or efforts it's simply meaning that in the heart of every true child of God there is a change going on and of course it's produced by the Spirit of God it's not something that we can just generate within ourselves. In fact, the Bible says that repentance is a gift from God. We can't turn it off or turn it on. It's We are enabled graciously by the Holy Spirit to repent. So that's what he's preaching, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, think about this. He's actually baptizing Jews. 
Now the only people up until this time who were ever baptized were Gentiles that wanted to become Jews. He's telling these Jews, you've got to become just like a Gentile if you want to be saved. If you want your heart prepared to receive the King, the Messiah, when He comes, you need to repent and signify that repentance by water baptism, just like those Gentiles have to do if they want to become Israelites in order to become part of the kingdom of God. And so there is this water baptism. In fact, it says over in Matthew that when they were baptized, they would be confessing their sins. It wasn't a light little thing like today someone says, Hey, I want to be baptized. Okay, well, do you believe that Christ is your Savior? Sure, so we baptize him. No, they confessed openly and publicly, These are my sins. I mean, it was a, it was a serious thing to be baptized by John the Baptist. So that's what's happening. There, there's a wholesale turning of the nation of Israel. There's a humbling of the people to where they're willing to take their stand just like any Gentile would have to take their stand and come as a guilty sinner needing a heart change of repentance in order to be accepted by God. Look at uh, verses 4 through 6. He says, As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled. Every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough road smooth, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. Now here he speaks about preparing a road, filling up the ravine, knocking down the mountains, filling in the potholes, making this crooked road smooth. And what would happen in, in the day in which John was ministering is that if a king was to visit a village or a town, he would send a messenger, a courier ahead of him. And this messenger would tell the townspeople, you need to get your roads leveled. Fill in the potholes. Make the crooked roads straight because the king is going to be traveling down that road into your village. And so for maybe a year ahead of time, they'd be working on their roads to get them ready. So what John is basically telling the people is that repentance is like a highway. Repentance is a highway upon which the king is going to ride into the hearts of the people of Israel. And you need to repent to smooth out that highway so that he can have entrance into your very hearts. So he preached repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In fact, the Bible tells us that Jewishness or non-Jewishness was never really the issue. John is going to tell them that in the next verse. Jewishness or non-Jewishness was not the issue. The issue was a repentant heart that was prepared to receive Jesus Christ. Look at verse 8. He says, Therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Don't boast about your physical descent, that you can trace your lineage back to Abraham. So what? God is able to take stones, dead, lifeless, hard stones, just like all of us were at one time, lifeless and dead towards God. And he's able to make out of stones children of Abraham. And did you know that in the New Testament, the Bible calls Gentiles who believe in Jesus the sons of Abraham? That we are children of Abraham? In a very real sense, we are true Jews if we put our faith in Jesus Christ? In Romans chapter 2, verse 28, Paul says, He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. So have you had a circumcised heart? Has the Holy Spirit cut away that callous over your heart and given you a love for God and a desire to please Him? Well then, according to Paul, you're a true Jew. You're a real Jew. Or Galatians 3, 7. Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. Or Galatians 3, 29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. So, 
How many of you have put your faith in Jesus Christ? You are true Israelites. You are Jews of the most important sense. Now, I find something very interesting here that I need to bring out. Verse 4 in Luke chapter 3 comes from Isaiah 40 verse 3. And this verse is quoted in every one of the Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. All the Gospel writers record that. Only Luke records verses 5 and 6, which come from Isaiah 40, verse 5 and 6. Now why? There's got to be a reason for why these Gospel writers select some things and don't select others. Who's Luke? Is he a Jew? He's a Gentile. He's the only Gentile writer of the Bible, far as we know. Who's Theophilus that he's writing to? He's probably a Roman official. He would also be a Gentile. So a Gentile is writing to a Gentile. And so what does Luke do? He records verse 6, And all flesh will see the salvation of God. Not just the Jews, but the Gentiles will see it as well. All flesh. Now, interestingly, Luke begins his two-volume work, and he ends his two-volume work with references to universal salvation. Let me show you that. Luke chapter 2, verse 30. These are the words of Simeon. He said, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. Luke is emphasizing that this comes to all nations, the Gentiles as well as Jews. And then notice how he concludes the book of Acts, his second volume, Acts 28, 28. Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They also will listen. So what Luke is wanting to do is to share with another Gentile from a Gentile, that the salvation that Jesus is bringing is available to anyone and everyone. It's offered to all. So the first message that John brings is that repentance can only be found, excuse me, that forgiveness can only be found through repentance. Serious repentance. That Jewishness or non-Jewishness is not the issue. If Jewishness doesn't give you any advantage, then non-Jewishness would not hinder anybody. If Jewishness doesn't save, then non-Jewishness won't condemn. In other words, Jesus is a universal Savior to all people. The last part of his message is this. People who evidence no fruit will face eternal judgment. People whose lives bear no fruit in keeping with that repentance will face eternal judgment. We've already seen verse 9. He says there, Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees, so every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, let's talk a little bit about this fruit. Because there were three different groups of people that came to Jesus anxious, fearful. If this is really true, then I better be producing fruit in keeping with repentance. I don't want to have just a show of repentance without any reality. I need to make sure that I have really repented before God. So they come to Him. There are the crowds, the tax collectors, and the soldiers. And each one of them is inquiring, well, what shall we do then? What does this fruit in keeping with repentance look like? How can I know if I've really repented? And so John addresses each one of those groups. The first group is the, is the crowds. Take a look at, starting in verse 10. The crowds were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. In other words, you're to be generous and you're to share your money and possessions with people who are poor and needy. Your heart is to go out for people that are suffering. Whatever you've got, if you've got two of something and they have none, well then give something to the person who has none. Be generous and ready to share. 
And then he speaks to the tax collectors. Verse 12. Some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. These last two groups were hated and despised. Tax collectors and soldiers. Tax collectors because they worked for the hated Romans and they took the taxes of the Jews and gave them to Gentiles. And so the Jews just hated tax collectors. And soldiers because they worked for the Roman government. They were Gentiles imposing themselves upon the Jewish people. So here the tax collectors come and they say, well, what shall we do? Collect no more than what you've been ordered to. See, the, the way tax collectors made their living <laughs> was not just collecting what was just and fair, they would collect additional amounts and they would take whatever they were able to get above what they were ordered to and they would line their pockets with it. In fact, Zacchaeus was a tax collector and the Bible says he was very rich. Well, how did he get his riches? By thievery. By collecting more than what was due. So here... The tax collectors want to know, what shall we do to bear forth fruit? He says, be content. Don't collect more than what you've been ordered to. Be, be content with what you've got. Be scrupulously honest in your business dealings. And so, for those of us who are in business, the application is that we need to be scrupulously honest. When we file our tax returns, let's make sure that we report the money that has actually been given to us uh, and not less so that we don't have to pay less taxes. Let's, let's be honest. Let's report to the government what is due. And then third, the soldiers. Some soldiers were questioning him saying, and what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. One of the things that the soldiers would do was that they would actually confiscate money or possessions from other people. They could use their status as a soldier and the fact that they were armed as an intimidating factor to say, uh, that's contraband, I'm confiscating it for the government, and then they'd just take whatever they wanted and they'd keep it for themselves. And so John is nailing them on their own besetting sins and he's saying, don't do that. Don't take money from anyone by force. Don't accuse anyone falsely that... Actually, that has been reported as stolen. I better take that and give it back to the government. Don't do that. And be content with your wages. Now, did you notice what all of these things have in common? Money and possessions. All the people want to know, how can I bear fruit in keeping with repentance? What does John say? It has to do with how you view and use your money and possessions. Wow. Wow. Now, they weren't asking about money and possessions. No one said, well, John, how do I bear fruit with the use of my money? John could have talked about fasting or prayer or synagogue observance or law-keeping. He chose to zero in on money and possessions. Did you know that the way you view and use your money and possessions is a really good barometer of your spirituality? In fact, it can be a barometer of whether you're even a Christian. Luke goes to great lengths to show us that sometimes, well, let's take the example of Zacchaeus for a minute. You remember the story, don't you? He's hiding up in the tree. He's curious. Jesus is coming that way, so he wants to see what all this is about. And Jesus gets to the bottom of the tree. He looks up and he calls him by name, which is interesting because he knows his name. Zacchaeus, come down out of that tree. I've got to stay at your house today. So Jesus goes and they dine together. And all of a sudden, Zacchaeus says, Behold, Lord, Half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And what does Jesus say? Today salvation has come to this house. Because he too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. When did Jesus say today salvation has come? It's right after Zacchaeus has had a heart change about his money and possessions. He knew that he had gotten rich illegally, unlawfully, dishonestly. He knew that. And so now he says, I'm going to give half of it away to the poor, and I'm going to take the other half that I got, and if, there, if I've defrauded anyone, and it should be since I've defrauded lots of people, <laughs> I'm going to give back to them four times as much. In other words, my money, I don't care about it anymore. What I care about is you, Master. Master. 
You, Rabbi, I want to be a follower of you. So you can tell if someone has become a Christian because their attitude towards money will change. Now think back with me before you became a Christian. In fact, it would be interesting if you could get an old check register and just look through that old check register of the things you used to buy and then look at a current check register and what are the things you're spending money on now. There ought to be a radical difference. So folks, what about you? Is it true that you are bringing forth the fruit in keeping with repentance in the way you use your money and possessions? There was another man that Luke talks about, the rich young ruler. Jesus commanded him to give away everything he had to the poor and come and follow him. He wouldn't do it. He went away sorrowfully. And for all we know, this man was lost and was never saved because he was unwilling to part with the idol of his money. His money meant more to him than being a follower of Jesus. <clears throat> In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says, Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of heaven? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor swindlers, nor the covetous will enter the kingdom of heaven. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the Spirit of God in the name of Jesus Christ. He mentions covetousness as something that will keep you out of heaven. Covetousness is basically a materialistic outlook where you, you're, you love things, you love possessions, you love money more than you love God and you're unwilling to part with it. A covetous person is not going to heaven according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. And you say, okay, Brian, well, if I'm to bear this fruit in keeping with real repentance, well, how much should I give? How much of my possessions should I give away? And there is no biblical answer I can give to you. Jesus called the rich young ruler to give away everything. In the Old Testament, God required a tithe. Actually, he required three of them. And it actually equaled about 23 and a third percent of their income. It was like their taxes. I don't believe we're under the Old Testament tithe any longer. In the New Testament, we are to give as any man has means. And the more you give, the Bible promises, the more you're going to be blessed by God. The more seeds you plant, the more crops you're going to get back. Not to heap it upon yourself, but to be a conduit through which you can give that away again and see the kingdom prosper. He's not wanting you to give so that you can become greedy and hoard it. He's wanting you to give so that you don't become greedy and don't become materialistic. So when people ask me, well, where should I start when it comes to giving? Usually I'll say to them, you are not under the Old Testament law and you're not under the law of tithing. But I think, just as a good rule of thumb, 10% is a good place to start. Sort of training wheels for giving. Training wheels. Look, think about it that way. 10% is a good floor, but it's a horrible ceiling. And what I mean by that is, start out at 10, but don't stop there. I would exhort every person here to to desire in your heart to give a greater percentage of your salary to the work of God than you did before. And as you give, God will bless you. And as He blesses you, see if you can give more into the kingdom than you did last year. Wouldn't it be cool if on every tax return we file, we look at what we gave and it's a greater percentage than what we did the year before? Wouldn't that be awesome? be wonderful. Randy Alcorn says in his little book, The Treasure Principle, which is a, a, a gem if you've never read it, he says, God prospers us not to raise our standard of living, but our standard of giving. So has God been prospering you? If he has, he's not doing it just so that you can live a more comfortable life. He's doing it so that you can be a conduit through which the kingdom can advance in the earth. I think probably here in America, this is one of our besetting sins. Because we have so much it wraps its little tentacles around our heart and it's really hard to extricate the idol of materialism or covetousness from our hearts, but that's what God is calling us to do. A repentant heart sees money and possessions differently than a non-repentant heart. So the basic message of John the Baptist is repent 
or perish. If you will know you have repented by bringing forth fruit, and the kind of fruit he stipulated was a generous and contented heart, a person just willing and generous and ready to share whatever he has with those who are in need. May God help us this morning to bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance. Folks, we don't want to make a mistake about this one. If we have never repented, bringing forth fruits in keeping with repentance, according to this text this morning, we are on our way, not to a Christless eternity, but to everlasting punishment in hell. That's where we're going. We need to make sure that we manifest true repentance that is accompanied with fruit. We're not saying that we're being saved by works. We're saying that if you have truly repented by the grace of God, this is the fruit that issues forth from it. And it ought to concern us. Let no one here today take lightly what John the Baptist said so many years ago. Because it still has very, very important ramifications for your life. If we're bringing forth fruit in keeping with repentance, we are saved and on our way to glory. If we are not, we are unsaved, no matter what we say with our mouth, and we're on our way to eternal damnation. So may God give us all true repentance that brings forth fruit. Lord, would you do what only you can do this morning in the hearts of people? If there are those here this morning that don't know you, would you humble them? Would you help them to see how they have broken your law and your standards? How they have sinned against you? Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year after year, and not surrendering themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ and bring them to true repentance. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to manifest true and living and abiding fruit. We pray that we would use all that you have given to us for the advancement of the kingdom. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.